Christian virtue, the mystery of grace and moral excellence. Uh, the first thing to recognize when studying Christian virtue is that the New Testament authors rarely employ the Greek term for virtue, arete. This is probably because for pagan Greek culture, uh, pagan Greek culture portrayed virtue as both the product of an elite training uh, that was uh, available only to an elite few, and they portrayed as something that was primarily the result of the elite individual's own efforts. Moral excellence, therefore, from the pagan Greek tradition was the unique possession of an elite few. Uh, the gospel message, however, uh, uh, can confirmed by Christian experience, uh, affirms the opposite. Uh, in Christian experience, moral excellence is available to everyone. And this excellence is primarily experienced as a gift. It is a participation uh, in someone else's life and excellence, the life and excellence that uh, a life and excellence that becomes our own. Uh, it is a participation in the life and excellence of Christ. Uh, the life of Christ uh, made possible through grace. Uh, and so Jesus will say, uh, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit because without, without me, you can do nothing. Paul, too, uh, thus affirms uh, that I can do all things in him who strengthens me. At the same time, however, uh, the New Testament authors do employ pagan Greek terms for individual virtue. So although they avoid the collective term, they do use uh, the traditional terms for individual virtues, such as justice, dikaosune, prudence, phronesis, temperance, uh, sophrosune, uh, portraying them as essential to the Christian life. This suggests that the biblical authors uh, appeal to pagan experience of human moral development to convey aspects of the mystery of grace. In other words, they appeal to human experience of moral excellence to show how grace, how life in Christ, uh, both transforms and elevates this moral excellence, uh, both transforms and elevates this moral excellence. Uh, there is thus a tension in the Christian portrayal of virtue uh, and of moral development. Christian virtue shares much in common with pagan virtue, but differs from it. It presupposes uh, the human experience of moral development, but transcends it. In our brief time together, uh, I want to share, uh, I want us to consider uh, the biblical understanding of the cardinal uh, and theological virtues in the context of the early church's description of the moral life as the way. Uh, we uh, will then employ the traditional analogies. I think I've, there's the outline. Uh, so begin with the question of the way and to present cardinal and, and uh, uh, theological virtues in that context. Uh, we will then also employ traditional analogies, uh, analogies drawn from how one learns a skill to help us understand how we grow in virtue, both acquired but especially infused by analogy. Uh, we shall then conclude uh, by considering the heart of the mystery uh, of the Christian life 
uh, the mystery of the cross, briefly. Uh, so, uh, the Christian life as the way. Uh, St. Paul, when defending himself, uh, affirms that according to the way, uh, excuse me, he affirms that uh, according to the way, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law or written uh, in the prophets. Uh, now, the law does indeed portray its precepts as prescribing a way, uh, a way uh, uh, that is the way of the Lord, in which the Israelites are called to walk. Thus, Deuteronomy proclaims, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways. The Old Testament employs the image of walking with the Lord and following in his ways to convey the central moral concern of the scriptures, of all of the uh, scriptures. And what is this concern? Uh, we can describe it as right relationship with the Lord. Uh, the Hebrew uh, term uh, for this is zedekah. Uh, which uh, was most frequently translated into Greek as dikaiosune, or justice. Uh, thus, uh, the Lord calls Abraham uh, to teach uh, his children to walk in the Lord's ways by doing justice, uh, by doing zedekah. Now, a full account of this central notion uh, and of the consequences uh, of employing a Greek moral term to translate it from Hebrew to Greek would be interesting to pursue. Uh, we'd have to start with how Abraham was is the uh, model of the man uh, of justice uh, through his act of faith and go through uh, the scriptures. But a full account of Zedekah is beyond uh, the time limits we have. Uh, but uh, it is important, I think, to at least focus uh, on this much that. Uh, as uh, incarnate wisdom, uh, well, first of all, the, the focus on the point that Christ is our justice. And uh, as uh, incarnate wisdom, he teaches us the ways of justice. Uh, uh, he is right relationship with God. And it is in him uh, that we ourselves become Zedek, that we become, that we enter into right relationship with God. Uh, and so as the incarnate wisdom, he comes to guide us on the way uh, through the tender mercy of our God. Um, uh, the one rising from on high will come among us to guide our feet on the way of peace. Now, this is possible uh, because he himself is the way. Uh, I am the way, the truth and the life, says the Lord. Uh, he guides us on the way and nourishes us for the journey. Uh, so uh, Jesus, uh, let's see here we are. Yes, so then Jesus says, uh, uh, you know, Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd. I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. So Christ is the way. Christ is right relationship with God in whom we are called to walk and live right relationship with God, nourished for the journey by the Lord himself. Uh, and as we will dis as we discover in reading the fullness of the scriptures, it is the nourishment that is himself uh, in the Eucharist. Significantly for our topic, uh, Jesus as incarnate wisdom also teaches uh, the cardinal virtues. 
Uh, the Book of Wisdom, for example, proclaims prophetically, uh, if anyone loves justice, uh, in other words, zedekah, if anyone loves right relationship with the Lord, whose works are virtues. And look at about that. Think about that. The works of zedekah, uh, the works of right relationship with the Lord, uh, are the virtues. And since Christ is justice incarnate, his works are the virtues. She, wisdom, uh, teaches temperance and prudence, justice and courage, and nothing in life is more useful than these. Uh, this teaching, uh, uh, by means of a, uh, this teaching is, uh, occurs by means of a unique discipline, paideia, uh, that entails friendship with God. Once again, uh, this moral formation is fulfilled in Christ. Uh, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know uh, what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have told you everything I have heard from my father. And so wisdom incarnate teaching the traditional Greek virtues. And yet at this point, one may raise an objection. Uh, are these exactly the same virtues that the pagan Greeks uh, pursued? Weren't those virtues, as we noted at the beginning, elitist uh, and ordered uh, to the self-sufficiency of the individual? When wisdom teaches these virtues, do they have a different character? In many ways, the biblical morality revealed in the New Testament uh, responds to each of those questions. Uh, but before looking at this more deeply, uh, I think we should look and see what we mean by cardinal virtues. So the uh, one way traditionally to see them as, as being four virtues that correspond to the four principal powers of the soul. Uh, there, is the, there are the spiritual powers uh, of intellect and will. And so you have uh, phronesis. Uh, in the practical intellect or prudence. Uh, and then you have justice uh, in the spiritual appetite of the will. And then in the emotional life, in the irascible passion or the irascible appetite, there is courage. Uh, and in the concupiscal appetite, the passion of temperance. Now, we it is true, the objector, one feature of the objector's objection is that Although those individual uh, virtues are described, they're never portrayed together as something that uh, are taught by the Lord. Or are they? At this point, it would be interesting uh, for us to look at one of the youngest books, if not the youngest book of the New Testament, Second Peter. And what Second Peter has to say about virtue. It is here... Uh, where we find one of the two locations where the Greek word for virtue is employed. And it's employed in a context where we learn that we are called to participate in the divine life. So let's look uh, at this passage. Uh, His divine power has bestowed on us everything that makes for life and reverence, Eusebea, through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and virtue. There's first reference, and it refers to God's virtue. Through these, he has bestowed on us 
the precious and very great promises so that through them you may come to share in the divine nature. So become koinoni, koinonoi is the, the uh, form of uh, participation that is described here, that you may share in the divine nature, you may become koinonoi in the fusis uh, theu, so the divine nature, after escaping from the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this reason, and then we have a list of virtues, and it's very interesting. The list begins with faith, and it ends with charity. So let's see what that list says here. Supplement your faith with virtue. And then here's a list. Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-mastery, self-mastery with patient endurance, patient endurance with reverence, reverence with mutual affection, Philadelphia, mutual affection with charity, agape. Uh, if, and then he goes on to conclude, uh, if these are yours and increase in abundance, they will keep you from the being idle or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this list de uh, deserves to be looked at a little bit more closely. Uh, Peter's virtues, uh, it's, it's supplement your faith uh, with virtue. And then the list. Now, Classical Greek did not have our punctuation. One way of looking at this list is that it is a positive that gives us a list of virtues that begin with faith and end in charity. So what are these virtues if we see this list? Well, they uh, become um, the knowledge, kenosis, and then self-mastery, enkratea. And then enkratea, uh, patient endurance, hupomone. And then patient endurance with what I'm translating as reverence, eosebea. And then eosebea with brotherly love, Philadelphia. Then fulfilled and animated by charity. This is quite an interesting list. If we divide it up, um, it comes, if we do, divide it up as an, as an positive, supplement your faith with virtue. Uh, that is, knowledge, self-mastery, patient endurance, reverence, and brotherly love. Uh, we can then uh, come up with a schema, a schema, where it corresponds to the four powers uh, of, uh, of the that correspond to the cardinal virtues. And there are a few things to look at in terms of this list. First of all, uh, enkratea, self-mastery, uh, one of the unfortunate features of the tradition of Latin translation that we've received is the translation of uh, sophrosune by uh, temperance. Sophrosune literally means to be in your right mind. And the classic example of this is the Gerizim demoniac, who uh, was out of his mind, uh, who ran naked uh, among the graves, the tombs, and could not be overcome by anyone. Uh, and through the intervention of Christ, he then, what's the first response? The townspeople are struck by the fact that he is now in his right mind. He's sophron, and as such, he's fully clothed and at the feet of Jesus. So sophrosune is a much deeper uh, reality than simply Temperance. Temperance focuses on an aspect of Sophosune. Uh, the two uh, classical aspects of Sophosune were Enkratea 
and uh, eutoxia. Eutoxia is to have everything in its right order, and that's what temperancia is translating. Uh, Jerome never liked that as a translation. He, prefer, he preferred sobrietas, which has that larger notion of uh, being in your right mind. And so there's been a movement, John Paul II had a big role in this, of focusing more on that neglected feature of uh, uh, sophrosune, not simply uh, en, uh, eutaxia, but uh, enkratea, self-mastery, which better conveys what temperance is. And this is what Peter does. Instead of using sophrosune, he uses the word which is one feature of sophrosune, enkratea. The same is true for the word that takes the place of courage. For Aristotle, the two great acts of courage that correspond to features of battle, one is to attack, if you have a sword, you attack, and the other one is to endure, as when you take blows on your shield. And so attacking and enduring. And the word that Aristotle uses for enduring as an essential feature of courage is uh, hupomone, or the verb hupomene, and that's translated here as patient endurance. So we have uh, this these core features of the effective virtues that correspond to uh, features of courage and temperance, uh, uh, patient endurance and self-mastery. But then for knowledge, a more general term than phronesis, uh, gnosis is employed. Uh, but it is gnosis that seems to see that practical knowledge comes from a deep knowledge of God. It's this twin feature that faith has an implications for how we live. And those implications are understood in what's being described here as gnosis, which is a kind of Christian uh, phronesis, a Christian prudence a Christian practical wisdom. So again, we have this list, practical intellect, uh, a gnosis that is a kind of Christian prudence, the concupiscible appetite, self-mastery, uh, which is that key feature of, so, of Christian temperance, and then the irascible appetite, patient endurance, which throughout the New Testament is the primary uh, act of Christian courage, courage to endure patiently. And then brotherly love and reverence. Uh, piety, it's often translated as, but I think piety does not convey uh, every aspect of this uh, biblical virtue. I think reverence is a far better translation because it touches all of our relationships, our relationships with God, our relationship with our parents, our relationship with creation, so it is a virtue of our spiritual appetite of the will, whereby we treat each thing as it deserves. So reverence in this context is the, is the foundational Christian form of justice. To render to each one his due, to be disposed to do that, is to live with a holy reverence for creation, that everything comes from God and is holy, and therefore, certain things are due to everything in creation. So, Eusebea uh, translated here as reverence. And then Philadelphia, which is uh, the affection, the love that is due for the members of the community. 
That's essentially what how it functions in the New Testament. Philadelphia, members to those who belong to the household of faith. Uh, that, that love, that affection, that is also part of the Christian life. But ultimately, all of this is animated by charity, which we learn even in Paul goes out even to our enemies. So we have a way of responding to the objection that the pagan virtues uh, that are said in the Book of Wisdom to be taught by Christ are somehow no, nowhere treated in the New Testament. But here they are, and it's in the context of this very technical description of participating in the life of God. And we should note, as we find in the Book of Wisdom, as we find in Books 8 and 9 of the Nicomachean Ethics, friendship is based upon koinonia. And so when Peter talks about our participating, our being koinonoi in the life of God, he knows exactly what he's affirming. Our participation, our friendship love for God, our participation in the life of God is a way to live faith and charity, the theological virtues, in and through transformed cardinal virtues. Uh, that's at the heart of the mystery of the Christian life. And I think it takes our whole life to uh, uh, discern the ways in which these four cardinal virtues, in the form in which they are given to us as infused, because Aquinas will, as a close reader of the scriptures, affirms in uh, the Prima Secundae, uh, question uh, 63, uh, article 3 and 4, that uh, there are infused cardinal virtues and that we do uh, grow in them in Christ. Uh, so we can understand how these cardinal virtues grow in us through the mystery of our growing in the life of Christ and in the mystery of his uh, mission in the world in which we are called to participate. So the way, now let's look at how we grow in the way. Uh, yes, I've actually, I forgot one slide, so we I've summarized this already, but the, the Pauline version of this in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, uh, are also, uh, they echo what we find in Second Peter. That is, in chapter 5, we have the great uh, presentation of faith, hope, and charity. And we have faith, hope, and charity described within the context of two other realities, the reality of the Trinity and the reality of grace. Uh, so it deserves uh, to be read carefully. Uh, in the old days, Dominican friars, as part of their formation, would memorize this entire passage. Indeed, they would memorize most of the letter to the Romans. Um, so how? Do, what does Paul say here? Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith to his grace, uh, in which we stand and we boast in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we even boast of our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces, here it is, patient endurance and patient endurance, proven character uh, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that is given to us. So if we look carefully at this passage, we see 
God the Father. We see Christ the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the action of the Spirit through faith, hope, and charity, and a charity that is profound, I mean, I'm sorry, a hope that is profoundly linked to the courage that comes from affliction, patient endurance, that's Christian courage. Uh, it, hope is lived through courage, through patient endurance. So now let's look and see how Aquinas considers and how the tradition considers our growth in these virtues. And it's worthy to look uh, at uh, a note on Aquinas' method. Uh, he affirms that we come to know the less evident by means of the more evident, uh, which corresponds to our needs. And so that this is according to the, the way of learning. And if that's true uh, in general, it's especially true with regard to how we grow in these uh, infused virtues, whether they are faith, hope, and charity, or whether they are, uh, as Aquinas affirms, these infused uh, virtues uh, of the cardinal virtues, infused prudence, justice, courage, and temperance. Uh, so we appeal to understand how we grow in these uh, graced virtues. We appeal to our experience of how we grow in uh, human virtue. Uh, and this is a challenge, as the Catechism points out, uh, since it belongs to the supernatural order, a grace escapes our experience and cannot be known except by faith. So a double reason why we have to appeal to how we acquire uh, acquired virtue in order to understand uh, the life of grace, because the life of grace is not directly accessible to us. We live it in faith. Uh, and the Catechism gives the great example of uh, Joan of Arc asked if she knew that she was in God's grace. And this is, if you read the transcripts of the trial, which we have, uh, the prosecutor was asking her uh, questions about her village, Doremi, uh, and about the different festivals that took place in her village. And then suddenly, out of the blue, he asked this 16-year-old uh, this theological question, uh, it, whether she was in the state of grace. And she replied, uh, if I am not, uh, may it please God to put me in it, and if I am, may it please God to keep me there. They said that a silence fell on the courtroom because no one had ever so perfectly and simply expressed the Christian, the Catholic vision of the life of grace. We live the confidence that we are in the state of grace, but we do not have the certitude of faith. It, grace is mysterious and it's beyond our direct experience. And so, therefore, um, we have this method that Aquinas employs. We understand the mysteries of grace and the infused virtues by appealing to uh, the acquired virtues. Uh, we understand grace by appealing to experience of nature, and we understand the virtues by uh, appealing to acquired virtue. Now, the classical method in trying to understand the virtues is to turn to skills. So whether it's Plato, Aristotle, or the great teacher Plutarch, uh, they will uh, understand excellence in life by means of excellence with regard to one aspect of life. So in an art, you can be a, a great artist, a great sportsman, 
uh, a great golfer without being a great person. You can be a good golfer without being a good person. But the analogies of how you learn to play golf are applicable analogously to how we learn a virtue. And so that's what uh, we'll look at now. Uh, recent scholarship has renewed our understanding this, of this. You can look at the work of Servet Pinkers in The Sources of Christian Ethics or Alistair McIntyre in several of his works, but in his groundbreaking study after virtue. Uh, but there have been many other studies uh, that look at how do we acquire a practice? How do we acquire a skill, something that we do well, whether it's learn a foreign language or how we learn to play the piano? Uh, there are certain elements to acquiring this practice that, uh, that all skill acquisition shares. Now, one of the reasons looking at this is important is it helps us understand the role of rules. A vexed question often in studies of virtue is the uh, relationship to law. And some theories of virtue are indeed antinomian that distinguish between uh, a rule-based uh, morality uh, and a virtue-based reality. But if you look at the heart of the Christian tradition, if you look at Aquinas himself, uh, the rules play a role in the life of virtue, even though the life of virtue is not reducible to rules. And studying skills can help us uh, grasp this. So in any skill acquisition, there's a standard of excellence. If you want to learn a language, the standard of excellence is an excellent uh, speaker, native speaker of the language. So a standard of excellence. And then also the internalization of the rules. The beginner has to spend time uh, learning vocabulary, learning the way in which uh, sentences are formed uh, in that language, syntax and grammar. Uh, they spend their time focusing primarily on, on that. And sometimes uh, they uh, won't always know the, the different uh, or understand uh, the different exercises that they are engaging in. Uh, but they trust that their teacher, who's a native speaker of the language or uh, a, a proficient a musician, so the person who wants to play piano has to do uh, internalize the rules, play scales, begin to develop a facility uh, on their instrument, uh, all of which focuses on uh, internalizing rules. And they do so by trusting an expert, a, a, uh, a concert pianist who they're studying with, a native speaker of a language. Uh, and notice how good education uh, will eventually place the skill in its larger context. So if you're in a language course, you will eventually, as you progress, uh, the, there'll be little scenarios where you go to uh, order a meal or you have some small conversation together with other students of your same level. So there is a social context, which is often forgotten. The social context of learning, even if you are uh, in your room studying uh, a grammar, someone wrote that grammar and they will also place the learning of that language within a kind of social context of dialogue uh, of someone wanting to share wisdom with you. Uh, so the social context of learning is universal. And then the experience as the person progresses in the skill of a, a kind of freedom, which 
Father Pinker's in English translation will describe as a freedom for excellence or a liberté de qualité. Uh, this uh, new freedom uh, is the freedom to do something that you couldn't do before, speak as a native uh, speaker of a foreign language uh, or play piano uh, like Chopin uh, to have or Vince Guaraldi, if you want to turn to jazz, to play uh, piano with. And notice here, too, that speaking the language like a native does not mean simply following the rules. It presupposes that you respect the rules, but you invent ways of speaking, have conversations that are expressing your unique thoughts as a speaker of that new language. Same is true for music. Music is not simply following the rules, but playing the written music with your own coloration, your own sense of time, uh, and your own emotion. Uh, the, uh, the, the keys, often people think, for example, that jazz improvisation or Baroque ornamentation is doing whatever you want, but it is not. It is uh, a freedom that depends upon having inter internalized and then applying the rules of the language. So when a Soviet journalist asked Dave Brubeck why jazz was so popular around the world, Mr. Brubeck responded by saying jazz has something that all people need, freedom from within tremendous discipline. So the rules here are internalized, but by becoming an expert in the skill, the person now is able to have a freedom that they didn't have before, a freedom to play uh, Linus and Lucy with their own improvisations, uh, to play that wonderful work of Vince Guaraldi's, or uh, the freedom to speak uh, French uh, like a native French speaker. Now, virtue, if that's learning for skill, uh, the experience of the ancients is that virtue is similar to this. There is a standard of excellence, the person of virtue, and there is the internalization of the rules. Uh, you have to, it's in the context of a community. It's also a social context. There are things you can do, there are things you cannot do. And of course, the beginner is constantly coming up against the rules. And so the primary focus of the beginner is on the rules, on not breaking the rules. Um, and uh, there is also the trust in an expert, someone who they whose life is a model for them and that they then uh, trust to help them learn how to live uh, uh, a holy life, a good life, a virtuous life. And it's done in the social context, the work of many uh, recent uh, philosophers influenced by the later work of uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein points more and more to the social context and the full animal social context of acquiring uh, these excellences that we call the virtues. And it's experienced as a freedom for excellence, to have the freedom to judge rightly what I should do here and now. Um, uh, so uh, this, this slide just basically says, right, the acquisition of virtue presupposes some conception of human flourishing. That's the, the standard of excellence. Uh, it also entails an apprenticeship with an expert uh, or, or experts in the moral life whom uh, we trust as we begin 
uh, our life in community uh, with others. The difficult discipline uh, of internalizing uh, the basic rules of living. Uh, Virtue Alvar is more than following rules, just as proficiency in music and language is more than memorization. Um, now, this new freedom, the Greeks will describe it as a kalos in the kairos, uh, to do the morally uh, beautiful deed uh, at the critical present moment. Uh, the uh, to do the bonum honestum, uh, when it is the right time, the hic et nunc. Uh, that involves discerning well what, when I should do it, and then doing it, and then doing it with the measure and proportion uh, that is required uh, so that the Christian life becomes something like uh, a dance, something like music. It has that moral beauty that the Greeks convey through the notion of the kalos or the kalos agathos that is both good and beautiful. Now, there's stages traditionally. It's very interesting to see that Aquinas, when he treats uh, the heritage of growth in virtue, he places it in his treatment of charity. The Christian life, the whole purpose of the Christian life, is to grow from the minimal requirements of charity, living the Ten Commandments, loving God above all things, loving neighbor, uh, to go from the minimal requirements towards growth uh, in virtue and holiness. So the first stage of discipline, uh, which is the stage of the beginners, or uh, in the Carmelite tradition will be called the uh, purgative way, uh, the primary focus is not breaking the rules, living the Ten Commandments. Uh, and therefore, the, the theological virtue at the heart of this is faith, trusting the mentor, trusting that what the Lord calls me to is going to meet, lead me to my ultimate happiness. And then growth, the growth in virtue uh, that is proclaimed not so much in the Ten Commandments, but in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the stage of the uh, proficientes uh, and in the Carmelite tradition, the illuminative way. Uh, the people at this stage begin to, with more ease, promptness, and joy, live from faith animated by hope and uh, acting in charity to become wise in their actions, temperate and courageous as they are just and reverent uh, towards God and neighbor. And then maturity, life in the spirit, friendship with God. Of course, the friendship with God begins at baptism, but this is now lived more fully where the our self becomes more and more truly uh, the self of God, that as we grow closer to Christ, we learn more cl uh, clearly who we are in Christ. And so we begin to desire more clearly what God desires, to thirst more fully for what God wants for us and for our neighbor. Our whole life is uh, consumed in a knowledge and love of what God loves and God wills. Uh, and so this is the unitive way in the Carmelite tradition, the way of the perfect. Now, everything we've said so far needs to be focused through the mystery of the of what can be called the economy of merit. Uh, 
we do not, just because we do acts of charity, necessarily grow in charity or any of the other virtues. It's only according to the way God sees and gives. The Christian life is fundamentally a gift, uh, so much so that those who have uh, lived a wayward life for most of their life can, just in the gift of grace and faith, uh, they now have all the virtues necessary to live a radically different life. They may have to grow in it and struggle in it, but the growth remains a gift. And so the analogy that Thomas will use is growth uh, by analogy with the way a plant grows. And so the image I put here is uh, how a redwood tree grows, which is uh, starking, starkly present when you can see almost overnight, virtually overnight, uh, how uh, the new growth has sprouted. So the tree will go for a very, very long time without showing any growth. And then suddenly there's a spurt overnight of tremendous growth. This is an analogy, but it helps point to the way the economy of merit, which is, as uh, the liturgy says, and as Augustine says, uh, our merits are also the Lord's gifts. So in the economy of merit, the Lord grants an increase according to our own actions. Our actions dispose for growth, but do not lead to growth each time. And then the mystery of the cross, with which I wish to end. Uh, there is much more that could be said uh, about uh, about this, but Aquinas, following Augustine, talks, describes the cross as uh, Christ on the cross as being like a professor uh, in his cathedra, in his chair, teaching us the mystery of his life. It's already uh, present in the portrayal. Oops, I'm sorry there. Uh, back there. Oops, I've lost the end. We've lost the, the final quotation. Um, see if I can get us back there. Uh, let's see. Here we are. I don't know how that happened. Here we are. Um, so Christ on the cross, the way a master is in his chair, teaching the mysteries of his life. If you look back at the quotation from uh, Romans 5, 1 through 5, the cross is already uh, strangely present through the trials of this life. Through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, through the mystery of his cross, we participate in his divine life, and we are called to share in his mission. But this is perhaps where the radical difference between a pagan notion of virtue and the Christian notion of virtue emerges. And we see it already in the Sermon on the Mount. The joys of the sermon, of the Beatitudes, what are they? The fulfillment is in a suffering for righteousness. The Those who are humiliated, those who are persecuted, those who hunger and thirst, this is not the normal pagan understanding of the life of virtue, the cross shows that in and through the weakness of this life, in and through the kenosis, the self-emptying with Christ, we 
participate in the Lord's mission and find our way to our ultimate desire, which is union with the Trinity, eternal life in heaven. And so Paul uh, had to learn this and the beautiful passage uh, from Corinthians where uh, he wishes to be liberated from his suffering, uh, that I might not become too elated a thorn in the flesh was given me, an angel of Satan to beat me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I begged the Lord about this, that it might leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient to you, for power is made perfect in weakness. Now in Latin, it was virtus. Virtue is made perfect in weakness. In his commentary, Aquinas says that this is a marvelous, a wonderful, a mira, mira modo loquendi, a marvelous way of speaking. It's as if, and he uses the analogy, it's as if uh, fire were to grow in water. But it is the mystery of the cross. Uh, in our uh, sufferings and sickness and trials, uh, unlike the pagan notion of the man of perfect virtue, uh, we can be, we can do, as Paul says, all things in Christ in the one who strengthens us. He does salvific good in and through the mystery of human suffering. That's the great transformation of virtue. And it's why Christian virtue will always remain in this life a mystery. Thank you.